You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to the Art of History podcast. I'm Amanda Matta, your host. I'm an art history degree holder, a social media career haver, and I woke up one day and said, what's the best and most insufferable way to combine those two things? And here we are on my art history podcast. This episode is the beginning of a two-part mini-series that's going to span two years, because the next episode comes out in January, about the first Black and Native American sculptor to achieve international fame. I'm very, very excited about these two episodes. Before we dive in, this is your cursory reminder to rate, review, subscribe, tell your extended family members who are staying with you over the holidays uh, to listen to the show, and also rate, review, and subscribe. It would really help me out a lot. If you're new to the show, the premise here is pretty simple. Each episode, more or less, I select a work of art that can tell us a story from the past. I will let you know what that's going to be today in just a few minutes. I will also post that artwork and some supplemental images over on the Instagram, which is Art of History Podcast. While you're there, go ahead and give me a follow. It will only save you time for future episodes. I will, of course, guide us through a look at that piece together as we explore the bigger picture behind it. Today's piece is one of the few sculptures that we've centered on so far on the show. It is called Forever Free and is subtitled The Morning of Liberty, and it was sculpted in 1867 by Edmonia Lewis. Edmonia Lewis was not only a female sculptor, but also the first sculptor of mixed African-American and Native American descent. Specifically, she was Mississauga Ojibwe um, to achieve international recognition. As a result, her artist biography is so fascinating to dig into. There's lots of, I don't know, there's lots of facets going on here. So I think it will serve us best to kind of treat this episode as a straight biography of Edmonia until we get to the point where she is sculpting the piece we are looking at most closely today. So to start at the beginning, Edmonia herself said that her father was black and her mother, Catherine, was a quote, full-blooded Chippewa or Ojibwe Indian. The reality may be a little more complicated, right out the gate. Throughout her life, Lewis was often inconsistent in interviews, even with basic facts about her origins, preferring to present herself as the exotic product of a childhood spent roaming the forests with her mother's people. Her parentage set her apart from many other Americans and added to her exotic artistic image, quote unquote. She is, of course, not the only historical figure to have done this. Josephine Baker is at the top of my mind as another woman who improved upon the finer details of her life. Um, she's at the top of my mind because I just listened to the second part of Queen's podcast's wonderful biography of her. So uh, go check that out after you listen to this one if you're interested. 
For this episode, I am also pulling heavily from a book called Child of the Fire, Mary Edmonia Lewis and the Problem of Art History's Black and Indian Subject. This was the first really comprehensive biography written about Edmonia Lewis, and we'll kind of touch on why that is. In it, author and art historian Kirsten Pye Buick, I hope I'm saying that right, writes that Catherine, who was born in Canada, was actually the child of an escaped Black slave named John Mike, and a mother of mixed African and Ojibwe parentage. She lived with them on the Credit River Reserve, now the city of Mississauga, on Lake Ontario. Residents of the reservation were entitled to get payments from the government, but Catherine's family was apparently excluded from their share of those payments by the reservation's Council of Elders, who also placed pressure on them to leave due to their mixed race. The family moved to Albany, New York, where Catherine met and married a black man with the surname Lewis. The date of the wedding and his exact first name have been lost to history. This, sadly, is a trend when it comes to Edmonia's life. Two options have been given for the name and identity of her father. The first is Samuel Lewis, an Afro-Haitian man who worked as a, quote, gentleman's servant, or Robert Benjamin Lewis, who was a noted African and Native American entrepreneur and author. Nevertheless, Catherine Lewis gave birth to a son named Samuel in 1832 and her daughter Edmonia on or around July 4th, 1844. I feel like it is probably more likely the around option for her birth date. July 4th may have been conveniently chosen later in Edmonia's life to underscore certain themes of liberty that will permeate her life and, spoiler alert, her artistic work. Both of Edmonia's parents would die during her early childhood, leaving her in the care of Catherine's two sisters who lived near Niagara Falls. There, the children apparently helped to make and sell baskets, moccasins, embroidered blouses, and souvenirs for tourists. According to Lewis herself, during this period, she and her brother went by their Native American names. She was Wildfire, while her brother was Sunshine. In 1852, Samuel, or Sunshine, left for San Francisco, where he would make a living during the California Gold Rush. He left Edmonia in the care of one Captain S.R. Mills. She was then enrolled in a Baptist abolitionist school in 1856. This school was described as a, quote, progressive academic enterprise, which believed in the unity, common origin, equality, and brotherhood of the human race and, notably, in the, quote, right of women to access all levels of education. There, she studied Latin, French, grammar, arithmetic, drawing, composition, and public speaking. And though Edmonia left the school around age 15, later declaring that this was because she was, quote, declared to be too wild, they could do nothing with me, her grades were, in fact, excellent. A number of abolitionists then aided her brother Samuel in sending Edmonia to Oberlin College in 1859, when she would have been around 15 years old. Oberlin was one of the first schools to accept female students and students of color. There, she was first enrolled in the Young Ladies Preparatory Department, which was designed to prepare women to enter regular college courses later on. She did go on to enter the regular college after completing that coursework. The Young Ladies Department at Overlin was designed to, quote, give young ladies facilities for thorough mental discipline and the special training which will qualify them for teaching and the other duties of their sphere, i.e. their other duties as a mother and an educator, whether of their own children or of someone else's. 
Edmonia's first year at Oberlin included no less than three periods of algebra, and her education there would go on to include religious instruction, modern geography, English grammar, and elocution. As progressive as it might have been for her to be able to study in an integrated co-educational environment, uh, particularly for the 1859 to 1860 school year, with a student population coming in around a thousand, Edmonia was just one of only 30 students of color, so there's still quite a bit of a disparity there. She later said that she was subjected to daily racial microaggressions and discriminatory behavior. She and other female students, for example, were rarely given the opportunity to participate in the classroom or speak at public meetings. Throughout her time at Oberlin, she boarded with a white abolitionist named Reverend John Keep and his family. Keep was on the board of trustees at Oberlin, and he was also a, quote, spokesman for co-education. The school itself was, as I said, integrated, and black students boarded both with white families in the surrounding area and, quote, among the stable, prosperous black community in Oberlin. So far, we've seen a lot of this support of the abolitionist community um, helping Edmonia get ahead in life. This is a trend that will continue throughout her life and later in her career. It was during her college career that Edmonia developed an interest in the fine arts, and she changed her name to Mary Edmonia. I'm going to just refer to her, I think, interchangeably as Edmonia or as Lewis throughout the rest of the episode. She was well on her way to earning a Bachelor of Arts degree when, during the winter of 1862, several months after the start of the U.S. Civil War, an incident took place that altered her trajectory entirely. On February 11, 1862, the headline of the Cleveland Plain Dealer read, Mysterious Affair at Oberlin, Suspicion of Foul Play, Two Young Ladies Poisoned, The Suspect Under Arrest. The suspect was Edmonia Lewis herself, and the two ladies were some of her white Oberlin classmates, Maria Miles and Christina Ennis. The three women, all boarding in Keep's home, had planned to go sleigh riding on a January day with some young men. Before going sleighing, Lewis served her two friends a drink of spiced wine. Shortly after, Miles and Ennis fell severely ill. Doctors examined them and concluded that the two women had some sort of poison within their system. For a time, it was not certain that they would survive. A few days later, when it became clear that Miles and Ennis would recover from the incident, authorities at first took no action, but then news of the episode spread throughout Ohio. The incident was viewed as particularly heinous for a few reasons. Edmonia, who served the drink, was a woman of color, while the victims were white. There were men and alcohol involved in the episode, and the three women had traveled off of Oberlin property without chaperones. The poison itself was revealed to be cantharides, or Spanish fly, which was a well-known 19th century aphrodisiac, so just adding a whole other level of unsavoriness to the incident. The Cleveland Plain Dealer, which was reporting on a lot of this, was a Democratic newspaper, which, if you remember your maybe AP U.S. history, meant that at this time they were anti-integration, anti-abolition. It therefore covered the scandal very closely due to all of these unsavory pieces, even enlisting informants at Oberlin. The college itself resisted turning Edmonia over to the authorities once outrage started to pop up in the community for as long as they could. But one night in the town of Oberlin, where the general population was not as progressive as at the college, 
Lewis was dragged into an open field by unknown assailants while walking home. She was beaten and left there for dead. After the attack, Edmonia was arrested and charged with poisoning Maria and Christina. A man named John Mercer Langston, an Oberlin College alumnus and the first African-American lawyer in Ohio, represented her during her subsequent six-day trial. Most of the witnesses at the trial spoke against Edmonia, and she did not testify. But on the final day, after a six-hour closing argument, Langston moved successfully to have the charges dismissed on the grounds that the contents of the victim's stomachs had not been analyzed, and there was, therefore, no evidence of poisoning. He recalled that Edmonia was carried out of the courtroom victoriously in the arms of her excited associates and fellow students, fully vindicated in her character and name. But the remainder of Lewis's time at Oberlin was marked by isolation and prejudice. About a year after the poisoning scandal, which was, again, almost certainly a racially motivated accusation, Lewis was accused of stealing artists' materials from the college. She was again acquitted due to a lack of evidence, but at this point I think it's safe to say that she would have simply had enough of this constant persecution and left the school. Because that's exactly what she did. She was just one term away from completing her coursework and graduating, but she did not choose to do so. Another report says that she was forbidden from registering for her last term, leaving her unable to graduate. One of the terms of remaining at Oberlin was to be of, quote, good character. This was an agreement that Edmonia had signed upon entering the school. Therefore, she would no longer be considered in good enough standing to continue classes there. Instead of completing her degree, Edmonia then traveled to Boston in early 1864 and established herself there as a professional artist. There, she met several abolitionists, such as William Lloyd Garrison, who supported her work and likely contributed to her choice in subject. Much of her time in Boston was spent creating portraits of famous anti-slavery heroes on medallions that she made of clay and plaster. These sculpted portraits, which I will put a few of on the Instagram, featured images of renowned abolitionists, including Garrison himself, John Brown, and Wendell Phillips, an advocate for Native Americans. Edmonia, as a woman, was prevented from studying the human anatomy, something which her white male counterparts in the field of sculpture were able to do, and this grounded a lot of their work. A few white women of the time were able to pay to get access to anatomy courses, but Lewis could not afford to do so, so she engaged in her craft without that formal training that many of her peers already possessed or at least without that piece of the formal training. Sculptor Edward Brackett, whose clients included some of the most well-known abolitionists of the time, acted as her mentor and helped her to set up her own studio. Lewis worked under Brackett until the end of 1864 when she launched her first solo exhibition. This was her big break, and it centered around a sculpted bust of Colonel Robert Gould Shaw, the white military leader who commanded the black soldiers of the 54th Massachusetts Regiment in the Civil War. Shaw had been killed at the Second Battle of Fort Wagner, and contemptuous Confederate troops dumped the bodies of Shaw and his uh, soldiers into a mass grave. Although she sold about a hundred copies of this work in plaster, the work itself was probably very personal for Edmonia. She had been present for the departure of Shaw and his regiment from Boston in May 1863, and on the base of the marble sculpture she carved Martyr for Freedom. 
From then on, much of the support for her works did come from white patrons in the abolition movement. Among them was the abolitionist Lydia Maria Child, who sought to steer Edmonia's career and shape both her aesthetic decisions as an artist and her public image. She often remarked that Edmonia was too ambitious, perhaps feeling entitled to give her direction because Lewis was receiving monetary aid and media coverage from the abolitionist press. Child once suggested that Edmonia work not in marble, but in, quote, stucco molding for architects, or even in wood carving. She thought that going directly to marble as Edmonia did was not just a risky move, but even too presumptuous for an artist of her skill level. She also took issue with Edmonia's habit of creating sculptures without first having acquired a commission for them. So at this time, one way that artists worked was by securing a commission from a patron or a customer for a piece and then creating it. Edmonia was in the habit of creating her pieces the way that she wanted them and then finding a buyer or a patron to take them on. If this relationship between patroness and artist sounds a little testy, a little fraught, it, it was. Um, we will revisit Lydia and uh, Edmonia's relationship a little later in the episode. Ultimately, Edmonia did not want to remain in the States. She wanted to go to Rome and hone her knowledge of the neoclassical movement in sculpture. Lizzie Peabody, host of the Smithsonian podcast Side Door in 2019, said this of her move. Italy had some of the finest marble quarries in the world, but it afforded something else too. Escape from the rigid categorization based on race and sex. Lewis sold enough copies of the bust of Robert Gould Shaw to finance a move to Europe, where she traveled widely and eventually established a successful sculpture studio in Rome. Moving there in 1865, she quickly learned Italian and became a fixture in the flourishing community of expat artists living in Rome. She befriended actress Charlotte Cushman and many female sculptors, including Harriet Hosmer. The writer Henry James described this group that Edmonia fell in with derisively as a white Marmorian flock. But he also singled Lewis out for special scorn, writing, quote, One of the sisterhood was a negress whose color, picturesquely contrasting with that of her plastic material, was the pleading agent of her fame. In other words, he thought she was only successful because her skin color was a novelty. I do want to take a moment here to say that throughout this episode, when I am quoting people from the 19th century, there are going to be some outdated references to race and skin tone. Obviously, that's not me using those terms. I think it will be pretty obvious um, when I am quoting someone, but I just want to put that out there. Words such as negress or colored, we're going to get a couple times coming up here. Those are outdated terms which should not be used in conversation today. Edmonia did want to be a novelty as a sculptor, but not because of her skin tone and not because of her excellent education either. Biographer Marilyn Richardson has noted that, quote, of that group of female artists living in Rome, she was the only one who went to college. But rather, Edmonia wanted to play up her image as a, quote, uneducated waif, which is why she started speaking about her childhood spent, quote, living with her mother's people and selling trinkets and her mother making moccasins. Richardson describes this as her, I lived in the wild and I caught fish sort of thing. In one account of how she became a sculptor, according to Richardson, Edmonia described being overwhelmed by the sight of a statue of Ben Franklin in Boston and not knowing what the word for sculpture was. 
she apparently cried out, oh, I would love to make a man in stone. But Richardson says, this is pure hooey. <laughs> According to the Smithsonian American Art Museum, Lewis stood out from her peers in another way. She rarely employed Italian assistants to work in her studio, preferring to carve fine marble artworks all on her own. I have seen an alternate explanation for this. Sculptors did usually hire local workmen to carve their final pieces once they had been designed. But Lewis did all of her stonework herself out of fear that if she didn't, her work would not be accepted as original. Nevertheless, her pieces took on their trademark naturalism and she continued to work within themes relating to African-American and Native American people throughout her time in Rome. During her first year there, she produced Old Arrow Maker, which represents a portion of the story of Longfellow's The Song of Hiawatha, a poem that inspired several of her finished sculptures. White artists typically characterized Native Americans as violent and uncivilized, but Lewis showed a bit more respect for their quote-unquote civilization. That sculpture resides at the Smithsonian American Art Museum. I will put a picture of it on the Instagram. But Edmonia's first major work, titled Forever Free, Morning of Liberty, was completed a little over a year after her arrival in Rome. Inspired by the passage of the 13th Amendment abolishing slavery, Forever Free depicts a standing black man and a kneeling black woman rejoicing at the moment of their emancipation. The title is inscribed upon the base on which the figures stand. The tallest portion of the sculpture depicts a man standing, gazing upward, and raising his left arm into the air. I remember when I saw this piece in art history in college, he looked to me like a boxer kind of standing triumphantly in the middle of the ring with his, with his arm raised. And I think that connotation for me is also related to the scale at which he's been depicted. He's not only physically larger than the woman who kneels beside him, artistically he's also depicted at a larger scale. So even if you stood them both up side by side, he would be proportionally much larger than the woman. I hope that makes sense. Wrapped around his left wrist is a chain severed from the ball and chain which he crutches under his left heel. To his right is a woman kneeling with her hands held in a prayer position. The man's right hand is gently placed on her right shoulder, so kind of wrapping around her and drawing him closer to him. Forever Free is pretty obviously a, quote, celebration of black liberation, salvation, and redemption, serving as a literal representation of the emancipation of African-American slaves. But of course, there is a lot more to it than that. Edmonia Lewis would have been keenly aware of the fact that while African Americans were now legally free on an individual level, there were still plenty of ways in which they continued to be restrained in American society. The chains are, after all, still present in the work, even if they no longer appear to bind either the woman or the man. I do want to consider the figures individually as well as collectively as a pair. So I'm going to take a short break and then we will get into some of the symbolism and perhaps the deeper meanings that Edmonia Lewis was inserting into this image and the deeper meanings that audiences have imposed upon the sculpture since then. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters and what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. 
All right, and we are back. If you have not yet pulled up an image of the statue Forever Free, I would recommend you do so now because I'm going to just kind of start, just start talking about it. <laughs> um, okay, the female figure here is completely dressed while the man is only partially so. This was almost certainly an intentional choice by Edmonia Lewis as one stereotype of African-American women held them as inherently sexual figures. The choice to fully clothe her female figure here was probably to subvert that expectation. Instead, the woman appears pious, grateful, and submissive. She literally kneels at the feet of her male counterpart, who many have interpreted as her husband. She exemplifies spirituality and serves as a literal support for him. And of course, that literal support can be extended into the symbolism of the sculpture as well. Noted biographer Marilyn Richardson says that Edmonia, quote, deftly suggests the continuing subjugation of Black women in various spheres of domestic and public life with this pose. The woman's supplicating posture, with eyes and hands raised to heaven, emulates a figure that was inscribed upon a feminist anti-slavery token that dated from around the 1830s. I'll have an image of that on the Instagram for you to reference as well. The female figure in question on this token and in subsequent prints kneels beneath the words, am I not a woman and a sister? This image, in turn, had been based on an abolitionist image of a black man in the same kneeling position, beneath the words, am I not a man and a brother? The female version became a symbol and a motto for not only women fighting for the end of slavery, but also for women fighting for the right to just voice their opinion on the subject, as women were prevented from taking part in the early years of the abolition movement. This so-called feminist remix of that image also worked as a direct appeal to white women for, quote, empathy across racial lines. Lewis likely used this emblem as inspiration for an earlier, now lost sculpture, as well as Forever Free. That piece, named The Free Woman on First Hearing of Her Liberty, was apparently different in that the woman in the sculpture was holding on to a child. But parts of an 1866 description of the piece could also be applied to the female figure in Forever Free. Quote, She has thrown herself to her knees and with clasped hands and uplifted eyes, she blesses God for her redemption. Around her wrists are the half-broken manacles and the chain lies on the ground still attached to a large ball. In this case, of course, the ball and chain are beneath the man's foot and the remnants of the manacles appear on his left wrist. Some have proposed that Edmonia repeatedly used this submissive position for her female figures as an ironic inclusion, as many scholars have read Forever Free as a, quote, visual testament to the war of the sexes that condemns the black woman to fourth place, behind the white man and the white woman, and behind the black man. However, others have pointed out that this reading of the sculpture is a bit revisionist, as it depends on a modern view of both race and gender studies. Buick, who has written, again, the most comprehensive work on Lewis, contends that instead it is not a feminist statement about the dual burdens of sexism and racism that the Black woman in America was indeed forced to bear. She writes, quote, Lewis chose for her ideal sculpture women who conformed across the barrier of race to the gender ideals of her time, which were largely informed by the culture of sentiment. Sentimentalism, defined as, quote, the excessive expression of feelings of tenderness, sadness, or nostalgia in behavior, writing, and speech, defined 19th century culture and gender relations. 
It dictated not just the, quote, lofty ideals of personal conduct, but also things like, quote, what kind of bonnet a woman should wear, when a man should remove his glove to shake hands, and how men and women should shed tears over their dead. Edmonia herself didn't necessarily conform to this set of ideals, but her subjects often did. Sentimentalism and its tropes would have been inherently understood by her contemporary audience. When her figures do not conform to this idea and these tropes, it was, quote, because racialism, racism, and sexual victimization frustrated their attempts to do so. Edmonia also portrayed a lot of women from religious imagery from the Bible many of whom may have been seeking a return to what those 19th century viewers would have seen as their proper place. Edmonia herself was, quote, opposite everything that Victorian culture defined as the true woman, who was heralded as pious, submissive, domestic, and obedient. She herself never married, although in 1873 her engagement was announced in an entry in the Boston Globe. It simply reads, Miss Edmonia Lewis, the colored sculptress, is engaged to be married. An 1875 entry in the Minneapolis Star Tribune, um, this was in their For and About the Ladies column, reads, quote, Miss Edmonia Lewis, the colored American sculptress, is about to be married. Her intended's complexion is in keeping with her own. Her fiancé's name is not given, um, and there is no other further reference to the engagement in history. Evidently, the most important thing was that if she was going to be married, their, their skin tones matched. Oh my god, I can't. <laughs> but you have to assume if the marriage had taken place, there would have been some reference to it. So I think it's safe to conclude that it didn't take place. Her clothes, therefore, her decision to sculpt, her lack of marriage all appear to have gone against those conventions of 19th century sentimentalism. One newspaper described her in this way, quote, Miss Lewis, the colored American sculptress in Rome, is short, stout, and rather fine looking. Her hair, which is slightly curly, is parted on the side and cut short. She dresses in a short black skirt and a roundabout jacket and a wide rolling collar. Her appearance is masculine and her voice... <laughs> Her voice hard and gruff. I mean, me too. She also often sported a jaunty red fez, which is a bohemian and artistic touch that I, I just love for her. You can see it uh, in, um, this is a carte de visite that was taken circa 1870, which now resides in the Smithsonian's National Portrait Gallery. I will, of course, put an image of that on the Instagram. If Edmonia represented a bit of a paradox for 19th century audiences, so did formerly enslaved Black women. They were now expected to be a soothing helpmate to their husbands, but they were also uplifted for having been, quote, wily and physically courageous, able to murder her master, hide out in swamps and ford rivers in the struggle for emancipation. For her contemporary audience with Forever Free, Lewis had, quote, composed a work that speaks strongly to the solidarity between African-American men and women, and that solidarity was at the expense of expanded rights for women. In order to participate fully in the culture of the United States, these newly freed enslaved people had to, quote, adhere to the dominant gender conventions, and thus submission by Black women was a necessity. In other words, quote, constructing a life that truly reflected freedom meant adopting many of the values of white society, in part symbolized by male dominance and female subordination. Forever Free is therefore not just a recreation of 19th century gender norms at large, 
but also a, quote, reconstructed image of the African-American family after slavery, and it becomes a subtle commentary on the hopes for the newly liberated population. Returning to look at the man in the image, we can see this kind of carried through to him. His right hand rests protectively on the woman's shoulder. This is the hand that has been entirely freed from its restraints. His left hand, raised over his head, still has a shackle and a section of chain dangling from it. If the woman's pose represents conformity to the gender roles of the day, then it stands to reason that so do his. He is depicted as larger than life, and again, we said larger in artistic scale than the woman. He embodies power over her, as well as serving as a symbol of their collective liberation and physical freedom. His partner is no longer the property of the white man, but rather she now belongs fully to him, the black man, to protect and guide. I would like to add once again, this is not me imposing this narrative from a 2022 standpoint. This is me kind of analyzing the way that Edmonia Lewis's audiences would have seen this sculpture. Just, just don't want to be misunderstood here. Again, and I think crucially, there is no evidence that Lewis was viewing the relationship between the figures as one to be criticized, nor it seems was her audience. From the dedication of the sculpture, we have a written account that none of the assembled onlookers, quote, could look upon this piece of sculpture without profound emotion. The noble figure of the man, his very muscles seeming to swell with gratitude, the expression of the right now to protect, with which he throws his arms around his kneeling wife. For all that were present, Buick writes, quote, Forever Freedom represented a fine and appropriate testament to what abolitionists had been arguing for across so many years, the integrity of the Black family. Albeit they argued for a family based on gendered norms found in the dominant community, nevertheless both white and Black abolitionists viewed slavery as an assault on patriarchy, as perverting biologically determined male and female functions within society. They believed that slavery, for all its other evils, degendered black men by bringing them under the domination of their owners, and this was one of the problems they were seeking to solve through abolition. There is obviously so much more you can say about this sculpture as it relates to changing ideas of race from 1865 to 2022, but I'm just going to include one more facet in my discussion of it, the somewhat ambiguous race in the figures themselves. I know we've been talking about them as, you know, very clearly a black man and a black woman, but if you actually look at their facial expressions, you kind of start to lose that certainty. If you didn't know that this paint, this uh, sculpture rather, was a depiction of the moment of emancipation, you might not inherently know that these are African-Americans. The figures have been described as possessing, quote, keen European features, and the white marble somewhat belies the true color of their skin. The woman has long flowing hair, which is at odds with the man's tight textured curls. Her race then is supposed to be less obvious than the man's, and this is perhaps tied to Edmonia Lewis deliberately avoiding anything that could be interpreted as autobiographical in her work. She wanted to be perceived as a person and an artist, rather than as a black woman. But as an artist of color, Edmonia's largely white audience often, quote, gravely misread her work as self-portraiture. And you can kind of see where that temptation would come from. Today, we, whenever there's an artist of color, we do tend to put that lens, that piece over their work, despite what subject matter they might actually be working with. 
Lewis had to, quote, balance her own personal identity with her artistic, social, and national identity, a tiring activity that affected her art. Bobby Reno, I hope, or Reno, R-E-N-O, um, who is the town historian of East Greenbush, New York, a town near Lewis's birthplace, remarked that Edmonia herself, quote, identified first as a Native American. Later, she identified more as an African American. She was in two worlds. This was a common problem faced by women of color, particularly mixed race women of color, which still persists today. Even defining how Edmonia felt about her own racial identity is somewhat fraught territory. In a quote for the New York Times, Buick once pointed out that um, Lewis once made a comment about her Native American background. This was in 1873 when the Western states were at war with Native Americans. She dismissed her usual origin story of growing up wild with Indians, saying to the San Francisco Chronicle, I have Indian blood in me, you know. Why, do you know, I almost envied the freedom of the Indians, which I saw on the plains, but then they were so dirty. I didn't like that in them. Buick added for the New York Times, what do you do with such a blatant piece of racism? You ignore it. That's why Lewis's story gets so garbled. Additionally, by eliminating overt references to race in particularly her female figures, Lewis has also eliminated any possible racial stereotypes being read into them. This is seen not just in Forever Free, but also in works across her entire career, usually in just the female figures. She has effectively neutralized them, perhaps as a way of truly granting them freedom. In 1878, Lewis herself told the New York Times, I was practically driven to Rome in order to obtain the opportunities for art culture and to find a social atmosphere where I was not constantly reminded of my color. The land of liberty had no room for a colored sculptor. In an earlier interview with her patroness, Lydia Maria Child, for an abolitionist paper in 1864, she you can tell that Edmonia was already bristling at this condescending attitude she was getting from Child due to her race. She said, Some praise me because I am a colored girl, and I don't want that kind of praise. I had rather you point out my defects, for that will teach me something. Child, in turn, refused to review or promote Forever Free, saying that she found it a, quote, poor thing. When another female advocate, Elizabeth Peabody, wrote positively of the piece, she wrote, every muscle is swelling with emotion. Child remarked in a letter, the figures had no muscle to swell. The limbs were like sausages. Miss P rebuked me for what she called my, quote, critical mood. She said, it is the work of a colored girl. It ought to be praised. I replied, I should praise a really good work all the more gladly because it was done by a colored artist, but to my mind, art is sacred, as well as philanthropy, and I do not think it is either wise or kind to encourage a girl, merely because she is colored, to spoil good marble by making it into poor statues. Child's attitude and writings, quote, reveal the pressure that many abolitionists felt to promote African Americans primarily because of their race. There is a bit of irony there in Edmonia telling Child that she wanted to be treated first as an artist, whether she was a woman of color or not, and then Child doing exactly that, with her critical response being somewhat scathing. It's almost like she said, okay, fine, you want me to treat you like an artist first? Here's what I really think of your work, and kind of just laying it on really thick as a result. You can't help but think there has to have been a middle ground somewhere that that was beyond, you know, the black and white of the abolitionists and the anti-abolitionists of the day. But 
really those those categories you know it was man it's so tough and all of these paradoxes about Edmonia Lewis are the reason that she's so fascinating as Richardson has written nothing about Edmonia Lewis is straightforward I really recommend you pick up that book that I talked about at the beginning Child of the Fire it's so in-depth and there's so much back and forth between not just the different parts of Edmonia's life and her career but different references to it and the way that people were talking about her work. It's it's a really good read. We do have a tendency to want to cast Edmonia Lewis as either a quote picturesque exotic or as this subversive activist for women of color. But like I said, those categories didn't really exist when she was living and working. She was simply like all of us today, a woman with a perspective that she was, as much as she might have tried not to, inserting into her art. One thing we do know for certain is that her work sold for large sums of money during her lifetime, although she sometimes struggled to get paid in a timely manner. Again, perhaps a side effect of rubbing certain patrons of hers the wrong way. An 1873 article in the New Orleans Picayune? I I don't know. P-I-C-A-Y-U-N-E. Um, this article stated, quote, Edmonia Lewis has snared two $50,000 commissions. Her commissions came from wealthy patrons on both sides of the Atlantic. Several solo exhibitions of her work were held during her lifetime, most notably in Chicago and Rome. Her studio in Rome became a required stop for the moneyed class touring around Europe in the 19th century. Frederick Douglass even visited her there. Ulysses S. Grant requested that she sculpt a portrait bust of him, and after sitting for her, he declared that he was pleased with the likeness. While many of Edmonia's works did not survive, some of her pieces can now be found at the Howard University Gallery of Art, the Detroit Institute of Arts, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and the Baltimore Museum of Art, in addition to the Smithsonian. Alice George, the Smithsonian Magazine's museum's correspondent, a job I would like to have, writes that Edmonia Lewis, quote, used threads of both truth and imagination to embroider her life story, artfully adding to her reputation as a unique person and a sculptor who refused to be limited by the narrow expectations of her contemporaries. It was very much a man's world, said Smithsonian American Art Museum curator Karen Lemmy. Lewis, she says, really broke through every obstacle, and there's still remarkably little known about her. Everything that we know about her really must be taken with a grain of salt, a pretty hefty grain of salt, because in her own time, she was a master of her own biography. And while Lewis would shift her autobiographical tale to win herself support, she did not welcome reactions of pity or condescension. She, quote, proved to be particularly savvy about winning over supporters in the press and in the art world by altering her life story to suit her audience. In, I think, 2016, I could have this date wrong, I couldn't find an exact date, Oberlin College opened the Edmonia Lewis Center for Women and Transgender People. This is described on their website as a collective of students, staff, and administrators doing the work of transforming existing systems of oppression based on sex, gender, race, class, sexuality, age, ability, size, religion, nationality, ethnicity, and language. I think this is such a fitting use of Edmonia's legacy, not pigeonholing her into just one cause, but really putting her name in this position where it can advocate for many, many people who are marginalized. In 2020, Bobby Reno, or Reno, that historian from near Lewis's hometown, 
wrote to Oberlin advocating that Lewis receive an honorary degree. Perhaps while she was waiting for a reply, Reno would also successfully lobby to get Edmonia on a postage stamp. This worked, and the commemorative forever stamp of Edmonia Lewis went into circulation in January 2022 as the 45th installment of the United States Postal Service's Black Heritage series. In 2021, an Oberlin official did write back to Reno, quote, rather than award her an honorary degree, Oberlin College has instead decided to award Edmonia Lewis her diploma. She will be awarded a posthumous diploma of the ladies course at our upcoming 2022 commencement ceremony. The ceremony took place in June 2022, where Reno said that she could not speak for Lewis, so she would instead read a quote attributed to the artist. Quote, Sometimes the times were dark and the outlook was lonesome, but where there is a will, there is a way. I pitched in and dug at my work until now I am what I am. It was hard work, though, but with color and sex against me, I have achieved success. That is what I tell my people whenever I meet them, that they must not be discouraged, but work ahead until the world is found to respect them for what they have accomplished. And as garbled as Edmonia's life story did get over the centuries, I think that is a sentiment that does transcend all of it. I am not going to fully wrap up Edmonia's life story just yet, because in the next episode, we are going to look at another of her pieces, one which she spent four years of her time in Rome working on, and which is considered her masterpiece. That is The Death of Cleopatra. The Death of Cleopatra is a subject that has captivated artists for centuries, if not millennia, at this point, and Edmonia's lens upon that episode from history is, again, just really a fascinating one and one that sets her apart, so I'm really excited to dig into that next time. That's going to be all from me today, however. Again, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. It really does help get the show in front of new listeners. If you're interested in supporting the show further, I am on Patreon at patreon.com slash mata underscore of underscore fact. Uh, don't forget to follow the Instagram at Art of History Podcast. I do have a TikTok, that's Art of History Pod, um, and a Twitter for the show that is Art Historic Pod. But again, is Twitter is Twitter gonna come back to life eventually? Like, are we we declaring it dead? I don't know what's happening. So, the Twitter's less actively updated. Um, and of course, I continue to make my own royal history videos on TikTok at Matta of Fact. That is M A T T A underscore of underscore fact. As always, if you have any questions or comments about this episode or what you would like to hear in upcoming episodes, I would love to hear from you. You can leave a comment on the Instagram, shoot me a DM there, or send me an email at artofhistorypod at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Until the next one.